Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in a time of great ferment, division, and dislocation. Lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the US and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. Today, we're joined by Dr. T, a multi-talented cross-sectoral leader with 25 years of experience training change makers and how to make the case for a more just, equitable world. I heard Dr. T speak on a webinar last fall about changing the narrative around homelessness. By the end of the session, I had already bought her book, Strategic Casemaking, The Field Guide for Building Public and Political Will. She is the founder of The Case Made, whose mission is to reimagine how justice wins. I think that's a goal we can all get behind. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. T. Thank you so much, Monique. Happy to be here. So Dr. T, the first page of your book hit me like a ton of bricks. It says, the single biggest failure of leadership is to treat adaptive challenges and systems problems like they are simple technical problems. Can you unpack that for us? Yes, would love to. It That, that quote uh, starts the book because it's the challenge that I think a lot of, of important change makers miss. And because of that, they end up solving the wrong problem, right? So a technical problem is something that we, we have to discover the answer to. Like we can figure out, you know, like the a cure for cancer is a technical problem. We don't know the answer. We have to figure it out. We have to go and discover it. We do some research around it. We present our research findings and talk about it. That's a technical problem. Most of the problems that we have in our country today, really in the world today, they're not technical problems anymore. They're adaptive, right? For example, with affordable housing, we know how to build housing. <laughs> we know how to, right? There's so many, I mean, you can literally go on amazon.com and order a house, right? And if you have Prime, they'll deliver it to you, you know, for for you know for, for free shipping. I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like literally you can put $40,000 down, they'll deliver the house, all right? You know, with, with free shipping. I mean, with all the technology, you can 3D print a house in 24 hours, cost you 4,000 bucks. I mean, you know, if you think about even the services that might be required for those kinds of issues, whether it's homelessness or other, we know how to do that. That's not a, the challenge for us is not technical. The, the real problem that we're facing is the adaptive part of it. How do we adapt to a world in which, for example, our value system is changing? It's inappropriate in this moment, right, to be having solutions that don't center equity, where our values around equity are changing. The way we think about how we use our land, who has access to it, how we allocate those things, those are the adaptive challenges, getting people ready for the future that is coming at us, right? The future is changing. Technology is changing, right? The way we deal with our health is changing. Those are adaptive problems. I'll give another example that may be just even particularly useful in the moment that we're in of the difference between a technical and adaptive problem. We think about healthcare in this country today when COVID-19 hit and we recognized that lots of folks well, should probably not be coming to the hospital, even for regular routine checkups and things like that, that just or, or small things that could be handled outside of the hospital. You know, a lot of hospitals pivoted very quickly to teledoc and other kinds of tele, you know, teleconferencing mechanisms to check in with patients just on general things, right? And so people started to go to the internet, like, you know, how you go on, you log on, you have your doctor's appointment, whatever you need. Um, the, the adaptive challenge is then you got to figure out how to help people understand what are the things that, that should you should be showing up to the doctor's office for, right? Versus the things that you go online, right, to look for, right? 
that's a difference between a technical and adaptive challenge. Technically, we have the, t- the technology to figure out how to connect people to healthcare, but the adaptive part is having people understand like when you when you really need to show up at a medical facility and have somebody look at you in person um, or, 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 or not. Um, and and so I, there was a good article in the New York Times a couple well, m- months ago about this. And they the, the, the headline was, the internet is not your doctor. Like you gotta learn the difference, right? That's adaptation. And that's the piece that we're missing. So how did this framing come about? I mean, it, it seems, it makes perfect sense to me even when I read that sentence, your examples further illustrate, but how did you get here to this framing and, and has it really been landing with people? Yeah, I think a part of it is, you know, kind of being in policy circles for a long time and trying to figure out how to solve a lot of these big, these big challenges and, and, and kept, and I kept seeing people sort of come up to, to bat and swinging at the wrong stuff, man. Like, you know, swinging the wrong bat <laughs> at the wrong ball in the wrong context and using the wrong tools, right? You're in a baseball game and you're, you know, using, you know, a soccer ball. It's like, no. <laughs> All right. And I think a part of it is the urgency of the moment is, is I think, forcing people to, well, number one, evaluate the wrong problem and try to solve the wrong problem and to do that with the wrong tool. So I always, I always tell folks, you know, don't let the urgency of this moment force you into a position where you're solving the wrong problem with the wrong tools. And a lot of the folks that I work with, even in the social justice space, are swinging at the wrong problem. This is not a problem of we can't figure out what policy like like to do. This is not a data problem. We don't have the data. We have so much data, it's ridiculous. Like we know like what happens when you invest in the power and capacity of people. What's the financial return on those investments, but also what's the social return? Like there's so much data about that. Data is not our problem. It's also not, our problem is not that people don't, they're not aware of the fact that there are these large looming issues like the racial wealth gap, right? Or issues of affordable housing or issues of the challenge in education. And so we keep throwing out, like, we just need more stories about hardship and what people are facing. It's like, who's confused about the fact that like, <laughs> we got 30 million people right now, right? Facing eviction. Nobody, right? Who, who's, who's not clear about that, right? Who's, who's fuzzy about that? Or that there are neighborhoods and communities where kids are growing up who, who, where they really don't have a shot at success. And if you're confused about that, you know, or, or folks say they're confused about that, they don't know that, ask them to name that part of town that they wouldn't drive through at night, right? Because right? we all have one, and no matter where you live in America, you know, there's always that part of town, right? Where you wouldn't drive through at night and you know why. And then ask them if they think kids live there. Yeah, <laughs> you are right. You are confused, right? There's a lack of will to address those issues. So, from my vantage point, the importance of this work is let's solve for the right problem, which is not that we don't know how; it's that we don't have enough public will to support the things that we know are important. But also, how do we know if we're playing soccer with a baseball? Like, how do we know we're using the wrong tools to solve the wrong problems? Yeah. So it's funny that I, I, that is exactly right. And, and I would say for me, let me just talk about my own journey for this. You know, I thought, you know, I grew up in Detroit at a time when Detroit was really in a tough. I, the first part of, I think when I was younger, you know, Detroit was a place that was rocking. It was like Motown and, you know, like all this a lot. I mean, people were working at all the, the car factories and Ford was, you know, had the cars coming off the assembly line every two seconds and everybody had a house and all of my uncles were working for the auto industry and, you know, you know, they had new cars every two years because they could get it from the factories and all that kind of stuff. 
And then it was almost, it felt like overnight, the city got really turned upside down. The factory stopped, you know, employing folks, right? They started to lay off folks, right? Because of competition in the automobile market. Uh, The other manufacturing jobs went in different places. Motown picked up and went to a city, you know, went out to California, um, deindustrialization of a whole lot of industries, but also um, crack, right? All of that in a very short period of time literally turned that city upside down. And the dominant narrative was just so mean-spirited. And I, I thought I could fix that, right? The dominant narrative about what was happening. The dominant narrative was about those people in Detroit who don't care, who are on drugs, who are da 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 And I didn't see that. I saw a different part of Detroit. I, I saw a, a group of people in Detroit fighting hard, right, to make ends meet, put food on the table, and, and losing that battle because these large macroeconomic issues. And I thought I could fix that with data. I thought if I went to graduate school and I learned how to, you know, talk to people about the investment in people and capacity that I could get people to have a different conversation. I could get policymakers to look at this differently and say, oh my God, we haven't been investing properly in the power and capacity of these people in Detroit who are fighting hard to, you know. And so I did that. I took a hard swing at that. And over time, just recognize even the the more data we had, we were just we were still losing, right? Not just in terms of policymakers, but in the court of public opinion, right? There, there, even the public was like, ah, you know, no more welfare and no more, you know, public services and these people, and that was the dominant narrative. And it just for me, right, as a social scientist, had to step back and say, this is not working. We aren't we aren't winning anybody with all this data, even though we were, we're swimming in it, right? And so um, as, as, over the course of my career, really sort of stepping back to say, what does it take to get people to lean forward on the hard stuff? And that's what you see sort of represented in my, in my work and in the work that I do with changemakers all over the country today. There are a set of things that are consistent with how you get people to lean forward on things that are really hard, right? Um, and, and, and to the extent that we as change leaders are able to, to grasp that skill set and deploy it, right? we're able to get people to reimagine what community can look like and also to reimagine justice and actually achieve the outcomes that we're, that we're pushing for. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it, and clear to me, data has never been enough. And when we were talking about that other element, the will, your book is subtitled the public and political will to do this change. And what is all this, you know, you mentioned narrative change around Detroit, and systems change is your general goal for the folks who are reading this guide. You also mentioned the book, voter suppression, gerrymandering. What does all this have to do with each other? Yeah, all, all of that is related. Cause I think, you know, for a lot of us, you know, just going back to the issue of solving the, the sort of solving the right problem. The right problem is addressing public will and it's getting people to take on a narrative that sort of, we are not spectators, right? And our role is not spectators in terms of what's happening in our country, we are active participants. I think, you know, when I think about it, I think we've been talked out of our agency by a whole lot of folks who have lots of degrees and lots of vested interests in the systems as they've been shaped, right? But who are not steeped in what I would say, justice as a framework or liberation um, uh, as a framework. And so when I think about who we are, I would say the folks who are asking for justice, right? They're looking at their communities and saying, this is really unjust. 
the way that we see folks being put out in the street because they've lost their job for COVID-19, they've done the best they could to support their families, they don't have a place to go. And now we have police coming to their homes right in front of their children, putting them out in the street. Something's wrong with that. The way we look at the fact that the, uh, the rates of teenage suicide in our country right now are skyrocketing. Something's wrong, right, with a, with a, with a country when your young people, right, are killing themselves before they have a chance to learn how to drive or fall in love or, you know, do the crazy things that people do as young, find their way. Something's wrong when, when, when their deaths are due to stuff that is totally avoidable. And so we have to, for those of us who say like the injustice we're looking at, what we're seeing, something's wrong with that. Our systems have to be governed differently. Like we have to take a more active role in that when I say those folks who are, who are watching that. Um, and so, you know, I think we've, we've easily adopted this idea or this position, the narrative that it's the government, the government should be, no, we are the government, right? We tell government what to do. We are the ones, right, who direct those governing bodies and give them uh, agency and legitimacy. And so there is no government out there that's going to save us. <laughs> that doesn't exist. We are the folks. And so I think a part of the narrative shift that we're talking about when I think about public will building is getting that spirit and energy back into folks, right? You know, you, it is our responsibility and opportunity to step up to this conversation with a different sense of ownership and agency. And at the heart of it, right, is, um, is case making. And when we think about this issue, I love how you talk about, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about voter suppression and some of these other issues. It's just like, you know, it's complicated, but we cannot get talked out about power. Voter suppression is about, right, locking people out of their sense of power. And so all of that is related, that larger sense of public well-building and, and having people understand what that power center looks like is exactly what we're after. And so I think what you're referring to related to is distance to power in some ways and who has it and who's close to it. And social distancing as a term of art has certainly changed since the pandemic. Um, but your definition is slightly different. And when we talk about social distance and the need for being proximate in some ways, how does that matter in, for public will and political will and, our, and the ways that we can make change? Yeah. So, so this issue of social distance is really important, and and it's it, it's been interesting to watch this conver this conversation happen in the in the pub in the broader public discourse because most folks think about social distance as something as the goal of what we're trying to do with respect to our health. Social distance may be great in terms of helping us deal with the pandemic that we're facing, but it is awful in terms of getting people to understand their power with relationship to public will building or in relationship to some of the justice issues we're talking about. Social distance in the term that I'm talking about means the distance away from people feeling like they have a stake in solving something, right, that is really important, whether it be affordable housing or the racial wealth gap. So, for example, if, if I am if I am an African-American person who has made it big, I mean, there, there are lots of African-Americans in this nation who uh, have have been able to gain a measure of affluence. And you're talking about the racial wealth gap. Hey, listen, my family is I, I'm <laughs> like, we're good. So the racial wealth gap is something you need to talk to other people of color about because that's not my issue. Right. The, for, the more income I have, the more distance I'm able to get from it. I'm especially distant if, if, if I'm white. Right. Or from another race. And I don't see myself as part of that conversation. You start talking about racial wealth gap and I'm white. And, I, and, and especially if I'm affluent. That doesn't seem to be a conversation for me. You need to talk to the folks who are on the other side of that, who are challenged by not having any wealth. 
right? So I have a level of distance from the conversation. When we do some of our, our community voice sessions, these are sessions that we often have across the country with average everyday folks talking about some of these issues and just trying to get a read on where they are on some of these issues, how proximate or distant they are from issues. You know, they'll say, well, I don't, I don't have affordable housing issue. I've owned my home for the last 30 years. Uh, I'm good. So that's not affordable housing is not my issue, right? They're so distant from that experience that they don't see any stake in solving it. And so when you see that happening, our, our opportunity and, and challenge, right, is to help people to see their stake in it, even when they themselves in that moment may not be suffering, right, from that issue. So what you, what you want people to say is, you know, I have a home and I've owned my home for 30 years, but I remember when I was trying to be able to afford a home. I remember when that was a challenge for me. And I want to make sure that every family got gets the advantages that I had at that age, right, to find a place that was affordable, to work my way into it and be able to have it and thrive as and, and have it as an asset that now I can pass on to my children. That's closing the distance so that folks can't can't sit out on the uh, sidelines because they don't see it as in their direct right, personal self-interest to be involved. You talk about giving people the ability to see. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how do we make the invisible visible, these systems that govern our lives that often people can't really get their arms around and things like opportunity cost and justice. These are very abstract, even democracy until maybe January 6th. You know, trying to have a world where we see these things and also see justice as possible. It's a bit of science fiction. We've never seen a just world operate. How do we get people to support justice winning? Like your company's tagline, literally, how can we make justice visible? Yeah, that, that what, what you're describing is exactly right. And it's, it's just like, you know, it's, in so many ways, you know, it's, it's our ability to paint the vision of the future for folks. That is, that is really critical. So if you want me to go on a journey with you to try to get after something, I need to know what's the end point, what, where are we going? And if you talk to folks long enough, like we all have the same common goals for what a just society looks like, but it's getting people in the energy of it, right? To get them to move forward. Sometimes when I talk to folks, I give them this example. I, when I was, um, when I just graduated from graduate school, I was lucky enough to have gotten scholarships and things. So I graduated and got a PhD without any debt or anything like that. Came out and got my first job at the university and had a you know assistant professor and bought myself a home and I was feeling really good. And I went out to go out and buy my first car. And I got to the dealership <laughs> and I was looking for something really sensible and practical. I was a single woman, no debt, you know, good job on my own home. But I was looking for a really practical car and I went to the dealership and you know, I saw a couple of nice cars and they had this like little red convertible, like sitting inside the, you know, inside the glass or whatever. And I was just kind of looking at it because it was so pretty. I was like, wow, look at that. I'd never, I'd never actually ridden in a convertible before. So I was looking at it and the salesperson comes over and he says, wow, you like that car? You want to you look at it? I was like, yeah, I like it. Yeah. He said, get, get in the car, get in it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I got in. So I'm in the driver's seat. He's like, yeah, feel the leather on the, you know, on the steering wheel. Uh, and then he says, so, so, so look, look, look through the, 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 um, the window. 
imagine yourself. It's a beautiful day. You've just come home from work. There's a beautiful sunset in front of you. You're on the highway. There's no traffic. There's a light breeze. The breeze is blowing through your hair in this convertible. You're driving down the road with your tunes, you know, whatever you love, that music you just love so much. Envision that. How do you feel about it? Like, you know, just get So he was, he was really getting me in the moment of envisioning myself in this car. I hadn't even, I mean, I had never seen a car like this. And I, you know, and I often say, you know, I, I just want to say that when I drove out of that dealership in that red convertible, <laughs> my hair was blowing in the wind. I was like, this is like, and so, you know, I give that as an example of my own personal life, but I think that's essentially, even for issues of justice, it's like, paint the picture of what it looks like, allow people to feel that. So when you think of the future of your city, whether it's Detroit or Hartford or, you know, wherever it is, Chicago, what's the future look like? You want to have this be a community where every kid has a shot at success, goes to a school that engages them, that makes them excited about what they're learning, you know, comes home to a house where, you know, they got great access to the things they need to grow and thrive. They got parents, all the stuff that you want people to embody, like live in that, right? And then you ask people, so how do we get there? Let's let's figure out the how, because that's the vision. Let's figure out how to lean into it. That is case-making, right? Allowing people to kind of visit the future, live in that for a moment, and then asking them to, to join you in the effort to get us there. Say that future is totally possible, completely 1,000% possible. We just have to help people envision it, right? And feel the energy of what it would mean to get there. Who doesn't want that breeze blowing in their hair? I'm saying on a sunny Who day with the sunset after work. What? <laughs> Who doesn't want a just world where everybody thrives? How do you say no How to that? Say, that's exactly. And that really what you just said is the spirit of case making. You want to make it so hard for folks to turn away, right? From the vision that you're creating. You want to make it so hard. And I, I, I often tell people, listen, we have to win over a lot of folks. You will never win everybody over. You will never do that, but you got to get some of them. You got to get the, a lot of these folks who are sitting on the sidelines, right? Because they don't feel the energy of what we're talking about and our ability to paint that future and have people feel that, right? Allows us to have people to make it very difficult for anybody to say no, <laughs> right? I mean, the no is really indefensible. You want more people doing poorly and suffering? How do you, how do you, how can you with a straight face make that case? And so, I mean, for me, the strategic case making work that you've described is just really visionary. And even just the way you articulated just so I wanted a red convertible too. And so who else has been inspiring to you when you think about, you know, your, your journey to, to creating this vision and these guides and other things, the way that you help and serve, who else should we be looking for too, for insight and models to deliver on this next normal that we're talking about. Yeah. So I, ha I, I, you know, I really have to say this moment right now, it, and I know it, it can feel tough because we've got COVID-19 and the economic fallout of that. And just so many of the racial justice issues that have just really sort of bubbled to the surface in a way that is undeniable for us to have to solve for makes it makes the moment feel hard and tough, but it's also been an incredible, I think, moment for leadership among you know um, uh, communities of color, among leaders of color, to come forward with you know ideas and thought things that folks have been trying to say for a very long time, we now have the opportunity to do that. I love the stuff you know the fair fight stuff that Stacey Abrams is doing around voter suppression and just 
really like clearing the deck for these issues that are just rampant across the country about folks getting talked out of their power and talked out of their vote. And I think what she's done in Georgia is a blueprint, right, for what lots of folks in lots of states across the country are learning from and growing right into. Um, but I also just think a lot of the work of like, you know, Angela Blackwell Glover, who's been doing a lot of, you know, just just moved off from Policy Link, but but doing a whole lot of stuff. Even her podcast is fantastic. And just talking us through some of that. Uh, a new book has just come out by one of my good colleagues, Heather McGee. Uh, the Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together is fantastic. But again, laying forward a blueprint of how we think about, should be thinking about how to bring folks forward on race. It's not just talking about, you, <laughs> our, our tactic in the past has been, how do you shame people essentially into caring about race and leaning forward? And what we know in terms of case making, but also I think what, what Heather delivers really well in her book is that that does not work, right? You're not going to shame anybody in the social justice Right. What you are going to do have to do is to have people understand their stake in it. Right. There's a old, old quote by a Booker T. Washington, uh, an African-American uh, uh, business entrepreneur, businessman, extraordinary theorist, et cetera, leader. Um, you know, you say that, you know, if you want to hold a man in a ditch, you got to get down there with him. And what we haven't understood in America, we haven't talked about enough is if America is going to hold back people of color and so many different, you've been in a ditch too. Like, like the country isn't thriving as much as it could because we've been doing so much to try to hold back, right? A, a group of folks from being able to experience the kind of justice and liberty that other folks are able to enjoy. Articulating that, like, listen, folks, it's not just that we, we are suffering from systems that are that are undermining our health and well-being, but so are you. <laughs> and let us have that conversation. We both have a stake, uh, uh, you know, in solving these issues. And more importantly, our fates are actually intertwined. <laughs> it's like, right? You don't get to the just, prosperous world that you want for your children in the same way that our children don't if we don't change the way our systems, right, are, are functioning, right, for our success. So I just think there's so many folks. I mean, I literally, I mean, there's just, I mean, we were just talking earlier about just the number of books and writing. I'm just loving that folks are in this space and in this moment feeling incredibly inspired to create, to write to artistry, poetry in so many ways. Um, even the, in the, the inauguration um, to see Amanda Gorman do, I mean, just an, not only is she was the example of a beautiful black woman in all of her right, strength and power and black girl magic, but just the power and fire of her words at that moment. So for those folks who didn't have a chance to check it out, worthy worthy of a listen, I think, to what she offers. So so just to say, <laughs> there, there's no shortage of imagination or opportunity to invest in, I think, the creativity and the power and, and passion of folks who are trying to pursue justice in our country today. And when you talk about that more just prosperous normal, if we were to have this world for everyone, um, what is one thing that it would be characterized by, in your opinion? I, I think, I, you know, it's funny. If you had asked me this, that question about a year ago, I would have said something different. Today, I would just say integrity. It's just, it just is, 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 a, is increasingly a rare thing, right? That, that, or it, it's a moment where we have to redouble our efforts, I think, just to show up with integrity, right? Um, I think when we look at our politi political leadership today, just what what isn't, you know, really <laughs> thinking about what it would look like for political leadership to show up with integrity and to stand in that um, and to stand in that integrity in the moment. 
And I would also say standing in the, the truth of that, because um, there's a whole lot of misinformation. Um, I call it the old razzle dazzle in politics right now, trying to talk, you know, talk, talk folks out of their power, like try to pretend like we're not seeing what we're seeing. This is not about race or racism. But I'm, you just said something that was incredibly racist. No, no, it's like that, that kind of razzle dazzle kind of stuff. And I just think that there's an opportunity both from an integrity standpoint and standing in our truth that is really just that that has to be the new normal and holding folks accountable to that is really important. And as we close, we have just a couple more questions to go. What do we need to do now in order to be good ancestors as Adrienne Marie Brown posits in her book, Emergent Strategy, which I have been reflecting on and quoting nearly since I read it. So I want to say I want to say the thing that I think is the the formal way to say it. It's certainly the way that I say it in my book. But I think it's certainly you know if we if we think about the legacy of what we hope to lead is really important. I, and I think it is strong adaptive leadership. This moment does not need crisis communications. It does not need more data. We don't need more stories of, of hardship. We don't need even more history lessons. Like there, if you go to the library, there are so many books of the history of you know, oppression, the history of inequality. I mean, there's just so much there. You, there there's, and there's nothing more we need to do in that part of the work. It is really showing up as strong, adaptive leaders, right? At this moment, what are the things that are is, is happening in our communities that require us to be adaptive, to think about how we adapt to this moment and, and move our community forward? When I think historically of, you know, in our community, it's always been, right, the folks who were at the head of the conversation were folks who were thinking forward, you know, 100 years, 200 years forward. What is it that my people are going to need, right, to be able to be healthy and prosperous? And it's that planning, those those among us who have that kind of vision, who have that understanding that are helping us to get relevant. Um, I just, I, and, and I give an example of that. I think I've been working with a, a group of religious leaders in Maryland who are trying to think about workforce development issues. And if, if you look at how technology, especially artificial intelligence and things like that, are changing the workforce, it's people of color who are on the underbelly of that. The first folks who get to get automated out of the everyday jobs, the teller jobs, the gas station attendants, the secretaries and admin folks, like those, the clerks, the folks, right, the local government jobs, jobs that we've held on to. Those are the folks who are losing the ability, their attachment to the labor force. And as a new economy comes in where lots of folks are going to be automated out, being able to think forward about what folks need. And so these religious leaders have been have been working on issues of like, what's the technology of the future? <laughs> like for automated for autonomous vehicles, right? On every corner across America, you're going to have to have one of these little things called edge servers to make sure those autonomous vehicles don't don't crash into each other. Well, who's the workforce of tomorrow that's going to be able, right, to service the industry, the need there, right? There's not really an industry yet. Why aren't we thinking about how we begin to do that? Um, that kind of forward thinking, strategic, adaptive leadership is what I'm talking about. And I just want to replay that. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Hidden Figures, but there was one part, there was one part in the, um, I'll say that again, just because I think my, so there's one part of the movie Hidden Figures, so I think you've seen that before, where one of the characters, and I don't even remember exactly her name, but for those folks who've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. She recognized that all of the Black women who were working for NASA as quote unquote computers, because computers were people back in the day, 
she recognized that they were about to be automated out because there was a new, this new huge thing coming that was going to take their place. She went to the library to figure out what this was about. Like, can I learn programming so that I get my people ahead of the game? And she did that. And she trained the workers, right? She trained the Black women to be able to be the folks who would be able to manage those computers before anybody else had even understood that that was what was going to be necessary. And it was her adaptive leadership saying, listen, I can see in the future, if I don't figure out a way to have these folks positioned well for the economy that is coming, they're going to lose their attachment to, to these jobs, right? The ability to support their families. And so what I'm talking about is that we need that kind of adaptive leadership. I don't want you just thinking about what's helpful for your children. I want you thinking about what's going to be helpful for your children's children, right? That kind of forward thinking, I think, is what I hope to leave, right? To be good ancestors <laughs> for the next folks that are coming. So we can't play tic-tac-toe anymore. We got to play 3D chess and look all the way as far as we can possibly see. Exactly. So what's next for the case made itself? And what exciting things are you working on other than the work with the religious leaders that you just described? And I think you have a next book that you're thinking about too, no? I am, I am. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. There's so many things happening. I think, you know, from my vantage point, everything that we do with the case made is really about helping to service the needs of those adaptive leaders. So we think all the time, what do those leaders need as they're thinking forward and planning? What are the skill sets? What are the practical tools and resources? And we packaged all of that up to try and give folks the, the edge, right, to be able to do that. So what's next is a, a new book specifically on examples of adaptive leadership, like the, some of the relig religious leaders I just talked about, giving hardcore examples of like, what does it look like when folks are showing up and doing the work and they're making a strong case, bringing people forward, mobilizing people right around the just future that we're talking about. So the new book is about that. I haven't, I haven't decided on a title yet, but it's coming. Um, there's also for our vantage point, and uh, we're building a new digital platform to be able to support those adaptive leaders and being able to have lots of examples, right? Because to our earlier point, we were talking just about the vision for the future. Like we want, we don't want any of these, you know, leaders who are showing up today to be confused about like, what are the examples, what to do? How can we, no, no, no. <laughs> we want no confusion. We want there to be clarity of lots of different examples of folks showing up in different parts of the work. Some are, you know, banking professionals. Some are, you know, social justice advocates who are, you know, advocating for different policies. Some are in deep institutions. I mean, just all over the place, right? That folks are trying to find their way to be able to work in support and in alignment with, right? This notion that that we can all live in a just world. Amazing work to come. I cannot wait to buy that next book. So thank you, Dr. T, for uh, putting your brilliance into, into books for all of us. And thank you for sharing some of that brilliance with us today. You can find out more about Dr. T and the work of strategic casemaking at thecasemade.com. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. We've benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. And we'd love you to share your favorite quote or mantra with us so we can share it. Full credit due. Email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the 
reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us, impactalpha.com slash subscribe. And Dr. T shared this quote with us today. A genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from the Domestic Impact of War penned in 1967.